One of my favorite times of the year, one of my favorite uh, events of the year at church is our Christmas Eve service. Uh, for those of you who are new here or don't know, we have like about six of them over the Christmas Eve time. And all of us pastors, it's a mandatory day for all of us to be on here. Uh, Christmas and Easter are the two mandatory days for us. And um, we get to be here all day and there's food provided and all kinds of goodies. The thing that I love most about it, though, is the fact that there's so many people who come to church only on Christmas Eve. And I love being able to be that person who they know as they walk in the door. So we have been involved in the hockey community for years. And um, so we know lots of people from the community who only come on Christmas Eve. And so I love it when I get to meet these people in the hallway and welcome them to Northview because it might be the only time during the year that they're in the church. So one family uh, came every Christmas Eve and then this last year, they decided to come on Mother's Day again. And it just so happened that I was emceeing and so I got to welcome them again on Mother's Day, which was awesome. And they said, you know, we really like this church so much, we're gonna keep coming back. And so the next week they came again and I got to see them again. And then the third week they came, I was emceeing actually in center court that third time, but my daughter Jessica uh, saw them walk in, she knows them from hockey, and she said, they were here again. That third week was a week where um, Jeff talked about this, the parable that Jesus gives of Lazarus and the rich man, and it talks about the topic of hell, and they never came back again. And I was heartbroken in a sense. I thought, why did we have to talk about that this time, right? You have this feeling like we don't want to scare people away. Why do we have to warn them about the future and what's going to happen? And yet, that's what we're supposed to do in terms of preaching the whole counsel of God. And so Jeff was faithfully proclaiming, but it scared them away. I'm still praying that they'll come back. But that's a tension that we kind of wrestle with when we come to texts like today, because we know there's judgment in there, and we know there's grace in there, and how do we, how do we speak about both? And how do we not scare people away? Um, Nancy Guthrie has written this awesome book. If you ever want to read a book on women's ministry, it's called Word-Filled Women's Ministry. We read it with our whole women's leadership team last year. But she says this, There is a day spoken of throughout scripture, a day of divine intervention in human history called the day of the Lord, or sometimes simply the day or that day. For those of us who have feared the Lord by believing his gospel and are joined to Christ by faith, it is worth waking up every day wondering with an eager heart if this will be the day. But for those who have rejected God's offer of mercy and ignored God's gracious intervention into the safety of his fold, It is a day worth waking up every morning thinking about with a sense of sickening fear. So perhaps this sets before us the highest aim of ministry among women, to prepare women for that great and terrible day. Surely, if we prepare women to do good works in the world and to have good relationships and to be good wives and moms but don't prepare them for that day, then we have ultimately failed. Will not all of our sound theology and creative communication and interesting events and well-attended gatherings be in vain if our ministry among women does not result in being surrounded by the women God has placed in our lives now when we stand before him on that day. This quote has been so instrumental for me in realizing that is what we're all about, is preparing women for that great and terrible that day, that day when God brings judgment on the earth and the day that God saves people from judgment. And my prayer is that all of you will be standing with me in God's presence on that day. So what do we do when we come with texts like we have before us today where it talks about God's judgment and God's rescue? Well, we need to talk about both things because that is what's gonna prepare us for that great and terrible day, knowing both things. And so we're gonna talk about that in two steps as we go through the passage today. We're gonna talk about the fact that in the passage, in this passage of Exodus, 
we learn two things about God. First of all, we learn that his judgment is sure. It's going to come. It's not something we are wondering about. It's something we are certain of. His judgment is sure. And the second thing, that his people are secure. We need to know both sides of this equation, that his judgment is sure, but that his people are secure. If we want to prepare women for that great and terrible day of the Lord. So, where did we last leave our hero, Moses? If we think of last week's lesson, where did we leave him? If we want to talk about the fact that God's judgment is sure, we're going to focus on what Moses knew and what he was talking to the people about. And so we're going to talk about where we left him. Uh, Sarah taught last week on the plagues. And when we left Moses last, he had just announced a plague of darkness to Pharaoh. And it had been enacted, and Pharaoh had said, I am done with you, Moses. I never want to see you again. And so we see in verse 27 to 29, it says this, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. And Pharaoh said to Moses, Get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. And just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. That's where we were left off last week. So that's where we start off this week. We start off still in that throne room. Moses has, or God has just told, or sorry, Pharaoh has just told Moses, get out. And then Moses remembers something. So this is what we're starting on verse 11. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said to Pharaoh, he's still standing in Pharaoh's presence, this is what the Lord says, about midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be a loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there ever has been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord has makes a distinction between the Egypt and Israel. All of these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. Don't you love this description of Moses? You can just see him all fired up, just hot with anger, right? That, Moses after, that Pharaoh, after all these nine plagues, still hasn't believed. And so what we want to re- realize in this text is that Moses is standing in Pharaoh's presence. He hasn't left and consulted with God. What he's doing is he's remembering something that God had said to him before. And before he leaves Pharaoh's palace one last time, he has something else to tell him. And so he tells him about this plague that's going to come on the firstborn. And he reminds us that the the Egyptians are going to be plundered. So when was he told this? What's he remembering back to? He's not going, like I said, he's not going and having a private conversation with God and coming back. He's remembering this in the moment. So when was he told that? Well, we go back to the very beginning of his call, Exodus 3, 18 to 22. I'll have it on the screen. This will sound familiar to you. We did this a couple of weeks ago. This is where God meets Moses at the burning bush. And he says, after telling him to go, he says, The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And this is the part that Moses is remembering. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. 
Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. So Moses is standing in Pharaoh's presence, and he's remembering, oh, God told us that this was going to happen, that we were going to leave, and that we were supposed to ask people for gold and silver as we left, so that we could plunder the Egyptians. And so he, he reminds himself of this as he is standing in Pharaoh's presence. The next thing he tells Pharaoh is what God told him in Exodus 4, 21 to 23. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord said, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refused to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. So Moses, standing in Pharaoh's presence, is realizing this is the end of the journey. I'm being sent out of Pharaoh's court. How is this all going to end? And he remembers back to what God told him. This is going to end with me killing Pharaoh's firstborn son. And so he declares that to Pharaoh because he knew that God's judgment was sure. He had seen this over and over again through the, the nine plagues that had come before. What God said happened and his judgment was sure. So Moses remembers that, and that is confirmed, his remembrance is confirmed by the narrator of the text. So if we go back to our text in Exodus 11, Moses leaves hot with anger, and then the narrator chimes in and says this, the Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. And so the narrator is saying, see, this is what God said ahead of time. This is what's happened. And this is the state that we are at now. So after that, as we read through the text in our look section, we realize that the text kind of takes a little bit of a detour, right? We get out of Pharaoh's palace. And then God tells Moses some instructions on how they're to celebrate this Passover, how they're supposed to protect themselves from this killing of the firstborn. And then we see Moses and Aaron go tell the elders of that. And then later on, this action, this actual action of judgment takes place. And so that's in verse 29, Exodus 12, 29 um, to 36, I'm going to read. So at midnight, the Lord struck down. He said he would do it, and now he did it. All the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all his livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. And during the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds of you as said and go, and also bless me. And then we see the account of them leaving uh, with their unleavened bread, and then it ends in verse 40 to 42. Now the length of time the Israelites' people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, on that night all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. What's the significance of this last part? It's being reminded again that God's judgment is sure. That this was prophesied to Abraham way back in Genesis 15. That your people will be slaves in Egypt and after that I will bring them out with a mighty hand and I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed to you and you will come out with great wealth. 
And so this passage, Exodus 12, 40 to 42, is reminding them way back of what God said to Abraham in Genesis 15, that his judgment would be sure, that he prophesied this 400 years ago. Now, some of you may have been wondering why it said 430 versus 400. And I just want to let your mind at ease that, like, the Bible uses round numbers like we use round numbers. Like, we'll say approximately 800 people were here on a Saturday night. Well, if you were my husband's friend, who was always exact, he would say it was actually 824. But we know if we say 800, we're talking truth, right? We don't want to be that nitpicky about the biblical text in the sense that they're giving us a round number of saying 400 years, and at 430 years, it says that very day, uh, the Egyptians, or so the Israelites, came out of slavery. And so they were to honor this for the generations to come. So Moses, standing in Pharaoh's courtroom, he was convinced that God's judgment was sure. He had seen it happen over the nine plagues. He knew that this was how God was going to end it. And then, actually, as it came place, as it came to place that night, his judgment was sure. What God said would happen, and, and it came to pass. And God's prophecy from 400 years ago uh, was then fulfilled in the life and the experience of Israel. So is that a one-time event, God's judgment in the Old Testament? Is this the only time we see him bringing judgment? Well, as we go through the book of Moses, or the book of Moses, the book of Exodus, we're going to see Moses make a new covenant with God, and the covenant that he makes with God is going to have blessings for obedience and curses or judgment for disobedience. And so he sets in motion this whole plan, this whole new covenant, where if you obey me, you'll be blessed. If you disobey me, you will be cursed or you'll, there'll be judgment brought on you. And so we see books of the, whole, of the Bible, the book of Judges, where God continually brings judgment on his people when they fall away from him. And time after time in the Old Testament, we see God warning through the prophets. And then when they don't listen, he brings judgment on them. I had a teacher when I was in high school, a French teacher, who would have all kinds of threats and promises, and she'd write all kinds of threats on the board, and we knew that none of them would ever come true because she never actually followed through with her threats. So our class was the most unruly class of any French class because we knew she wasn't going to follow through with her, with her threats. But is that the case with God in the Bible? Every time he has a threat, he follows through. He's merciful, and he extends grace, and he extends warning, but his judgment is sure. So we see that in the Old Testament, and then we see that warning come up in the New Testament. If you were here with us when we had the study of the book of Luke, you will know that Jesus over and over and over again is warning people that, that you are here, I'm here with you now, believe, repent, follow me now, enter through the narrow gate, get, come into the banquet, um, be ready, be watchful, because this will not go forever. God's judgment is sure it will come, and he warns people over and over again. That text that, um, that Jeff preached on about the rich man and Lazarus, the text that talks about hell, that was Jesus t telling people, you have Moses and the prophets. Listen to them, because God's judgment is sure. Over and over again, he tells us that. And in 2 Peter 3, 3-10, we get a great description of that again, where Peter repeats this idea that at the end of time, there is a sure judgment that's about to come. So I'll read that to you. It'll be on the screen too. 2 Peter 3, 3-10. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Have you ever heard people talk like that? When's God actually going to come? It's been going on forever. This is a, just a big fairy tale. But they deliberately forget 
how God acted in the past. That long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of the water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged, deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in coming and keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, as, like a surprise in the middle of the night when you're not expecting it. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Peter is affirming that God's judgment is sure. We haven't experienced it yet. But God is not a God of idle threats. He has judged in the past, and he will judge again. So what are the implications of that for us? Well, if we are people who are downtrodden, when you think of people who are persecuted Christians, who are living in places where they are in fear of their lives, if you think of the fact that the Israelites were experiencing slavery and harsh treatment and brutality, if you think of even people within this room or people of my friends who are downtrodden, they've been treated horribly by people and they want justice, this is an amazing comfort to know that God's judgment is sure. All of those situations that we wish we could change, that we could get rid of, that that person would be punished for what they did because they've hurt us terribly or hurt someone else terribly, God's judgment is sure. That person is going to have to stand before God one day and answer for their actions. And so we can take comfort and hope in that. And hopefully, over time, as we leave past hurts behind us, we can, as Paul says in Romans, we can leave that to the wrath of God. Know that God is going to deal with it. And so we can move on in forgiveness and grace and mercy. That's what the New Testament writers would call us to do. Because God will judge. So we can take comfort in the knowledge that God's judgment is sure. It also needs to be part of the warnings that we give to people that God's judgment is sure. So I was at a uh, interfaith conference last year at Columbia Bible College. They asked me to come speak on the Christian perspective on good works. And there was a Buddhist person and a Baha'i person and a Hindu person and a Sikh person. And my understanding of this event was that we were all supposed to come to the event and talk about uniquely how our faith kind of pushed us towards good works. And we were supposed to talk about the uniquenesses of our faith and how our faith um, yeah, had a specific uh, viewpoint on this. What I was surprised at is that when I went to this event, I was the only one that kind of said Christianity is the only way. Everybody else said, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe. Like, we're all kind of doing the same thing. Like, there's Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims and Jews. We can all work together. It doesn't really matter what we believe. Let's just all kind of work together for the good of humanity. And at the end of the topic, one of the women, we had a Q&A, and this person wrote in a question and said, why are you Christians so intolerant? Why do you say that you're the only way? And so on the spot, I had to think of an answer. And I was like, man. <laughs> and the answer I came up with wasn't all that I, later you think, oh man, I could have said this, and I could have said that, and I could have said that. But my answer at the moment was, 
Um, I have to, I'm called to be tolerant in the way I treat you as someone who believes something that's different than me. I cannot beat you up, I cannot belittle you, I cannot, you know, argue you, like, be mean to you. I'm called to be tolerant to walk alongside you. But I said, that doesn't mean I'm not going to try to persuade you that my way is the way, that God actually will judge, and that history's, history kind of is encapsulated around the story of Jesus. And so our job as Christians is not to belittle or to hate on people who think otherwise, but to try to persuade them. Because if this is the truth, if God's judgment is sure, we want them to stand with us on our side of the fence <laughs> on that day. It doesn't help us to say, like later I thought, you know, you could have used the idea of, like if you see someone drinking poison and you tell them not to, or not, if you don't yell at them to stop, is that being tolerant? Well, it's not being loving, right? To allow someone to, to just drink poison. If you see someone driving off a cliff and you don't try to stop them, is it being tolerant to just let them drive off the cliff? No, it's an atmosphere or a kind of an act of love for us to try to convince people, to try and persuade them that Christianity is the way, that Jesus is the hinge of human history, that God will come to judge, and it's whether or not we're found in him that is the key to our future. So that's kind of a public warning that I gave, but it's sometimes hard to do that even with friends, right? I was in a conversation with a friend just this last weekend, and I just felt after, like, I just, you know, I love this friend, and she has a great heart, but her kind of idea of God is just kind of not what I would hope it would be. And so I said, and, but I wasn't really that clear in our conversation. And so later on, I just texted her and I said, like, my prayer for all of us is that we would just stand in him because we are going to have to one day give an account for our lives. And it's not, we, Jesus said, like, let's not lose our, um, what does it say? I'm talking about the idea of the, I should have had this written down. What, what gain is it to win the world but to lose your soul? And so I put that before her and I said, like, I, I love you and I want you to be with me in Jesus at the end of the time. If we know that God's judgment is sure, how do we proclaim that to the people that we love, to the people that we care about? So Nancy Guthrie told us we need to help people prepare for the day of the Lord by reminding them that God's judgment is sure, but we don't want to leave them in that state of panic right? What do you do then if you know that God's judgment is sure? What do you do with it? Well, that's a part two of this, is that God's people are secure. In the midst of this sure judgment, God's people are secure. And so Exodus 12, 1 to 13, reminds us of the fact that God's people are secure. And so we see in there, I'm actually not going to read it all because I'm running out of time here already. Uh, we see in here the preparations that Moses told the people to do in order to be secure, right? They were supposed to kill the Passover lamb, to take it into their houses on the 10th day, to kill it on the 14th day, to take the blood and to move it over, to put it on their doorposts so that they would be secure. So what saved Israel? Some people might have a, a problem with the fact that, you know, it was Pharaoh, Pharaoh's firstborn that was killed, but also the servant's firstborn and also the prisoner's firstborn and think, well, they, were they not innocent? Well, is anyone innocent? Were the Israelites saved because they were innocent? No, they were saved because they took shelter under the blood of the Lamb, because they followed God's instructions. So in the plagues, the flies, the gnats, the livestock, and the darkness, God made the distinction. Remember, he said, 
I will save my people, and they won't have the darkness, they'll have light, they won't have the flies, they won't have the gnats. But in this one, they actually had to make a step of obedience. They actually had to decide whether or not they were going to follow God, whether they were going to stay and take shelter under the blood. And then they were secure. I want you to put yourself in the place of those people that night. Would they have felt secure? As they're lying there in their bed and hearing screams of people wailing around them. I've laid in bed on nights where I know I'm going on a trip the next day and like everything's going in my mind like where's my passport, where's my money, where's my keys, have I paid that bill, what's happening with the dog, okay, that's just going on a trip. I don't know if any of you, well, yeah, a lot of you would be old enough to remember like Y2K when the, the whole turned from 1999 to 2000, we were all like waiting like by the TV, like is the whole world going to blow up? Because that's what they'd been saying like the year before, like as the computer turns over, like the whole, we don't know what's going to happen to this new, new millennium. And so we were watching and we were waiting with anticipation what was going to happen next. I can't imagine how my family would be in uproar if we knew that our firstborn son could potentially die. My firstborn son is one of those guys that worries about everything. When he was a kid, like it was like we'd be trying to teach him how to ride a bike and he'd be like, do you have me dad? Do you have me mom? When he'd want to jump off a slide, it's like, are you sure you're there? Are you going to catch me? Are you Are going to catch me? I can't imagine what he would be doing on a night knowing that this was a night where God said all firstborns would die. Clayton would have been a complete mess. I would have been a complete mess as a mother. So we need to realize that the Israelites are told that they're secure, but they would not necessarily have felt secure. This would have been a scary, terrifying situation for them. And so when we see that they hear this wailing, and then it says in 12, verse 29 to 32, um, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all the officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was a loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During that night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people. You and the Israelites go worship the Lord as you requested. You can imagine them just standing up, kind of in shock and in awe, realizing that, wow, we've been spared just shaking themselves up, kind of getting rid of their shaking hands, realizing that they have been spared. And then they have gold and silver piled on them from their neighbors, and they're hearing this kind of in their own minds, realizing that everything that God had said was coming true. In 12 verse 37, we read that 600,000 men and women and children were marching in broad daylight, and others were coming along. So when Nancy Guthrie tells us to prepare people for that great and terrible day, what she's encouraging us to do is to proclaim over and over again that God's judgment is sure and that God's people are secure so that what? So that people say, I want in. So that they want to be like these Egyptians. It says a great many other people followed the Israelites out. They realized God's judgment is sure, God's people are secure. I don't want to stay here. I want to go with them. I want to follow this God. So how do they get in? Well, if you did some of your whole Bible review or whole Bible connections, you'll see that there was a process for which God allowed these people to enter his covenant. And as you go through the rest of the Old Testament, you see there's a process for which God allows people to remain in relationship with him. And this starts way back at Genesis 22. We see the, the, the time when Abraham was asked to give his son Isaac as a sacrifice to God as a test. And at the very moment of truth, God sends a ram to be a substitute and Abraham, or sorry, Isaac is saved from death. 
As the Israelites travel on through the wilderness and they get all the law, the Leviticus 16 has this whole thing about the Day of Atonement. And the people's sins are covered once a year by a substitute, by a goat who's killed on their behalf. And we get this idea that there's a substitute for us, something that will come in our behalf that will stop God from putting judgment upon us. In the scripture, in that learn section that you did today, you saw John 1 and Matthew 26 and Revelation 5, and you realize that all of this was pointing forward to the fact that Jesus would be the substitute, that he would be the one, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world. That he was killed on Passover as our substitute. And that we can take shelter under his blood. When we are in Christ, God will pass over our sins. Like he passed over the houses of Israel. God's people are secure. So the picture throughout security, throughout scripture, I mean, of security, it isn't this um, kind of picture that we might have of drinking a pina colada on the beaches of Hawaii when we think of, you know, being secure and happy and content. The pictures that we have of scripture are more like these three pictures that are coming on the screen. Uh, the first is a house on a hillside after the 1993 Laguna Canyon fire. One house left standing and destruction all around it. This house is a picture on a fire retardant <laughs> commercial now. But um, it was a picture of destruction. The second picture, this is at Hurricane Michael uh, on the Florida coast. And again, one house left standing with destruction all around. The forces had taken out everything else around it. The third is a house after the Hurricane Ike, which is in Texas. The couple that built this house had built a house previously that had been lost in a hurricane, and they thought, this one's going to stand. <laughs> And so they built it in the middle of nowhere Well, everything else was gone. So the picture that we have in, in Scripture of our security as Christians is the fact that there are going to be storms that are swirling all around us. Not that we're going to be sitting on a beach in Hawaii with a pina colada. We're going to be secure, but it's going to be in the midst of this storms. And so how do we survive? How do we hold on? How do we be the ones standing at the end when destruction falls? Well, it's the same answer that the Israelites had. We need to take shelter under the blood of Christ. We need to stay in that house. So how do we take shelter in the blood, under the blood of Christ? In the midst of the storm, we want to stay in the house, in God's house. Can you imagine what would have happened to the Israelites if they heard all the screaming around them and they just freaked out and ran out of the house? They would have been slayed by the destroyer. But sometimes, what I hear is that people will say, there's all these storms in my life. I'm a teacher, and I don't know how to walk through the SOGI curriculum in my classroom. I'm a nurse, and I don't know what to do with people that have abortions. I don't know what to do with medical assisted dying. Maybe I should just throw up my hands. It's just too hard to be a Christian. My daughter's getting her social work degree, and she's wondering, like, by the time I'm done my degree, can I even be a Christian and be a social worker? And so people will say, that storm outside is too big. I don't know if I can do it. Sometimes we feel that internal storm of that spiritual oppression, uh, of Satan kind of oppressing us and of trying to confuse us and make us feel like we are not worthy. 
And I've had times where I've thought in my own mind, maybe I should just get out of ministry because it's just too hard. I have too many forces against me. Maybe it's easier to just kind of get out, to get away, to run out of the house. I've had friends who struggle with temptation. I have one friend who's a single mom and she doesn't want to be lonely and so she keeps kind of getting in with other guys in order to not be lonely. And in between guys, she kind of comes back to God and then she says, but it's too hard. It's too hard to be a single mom. It's too hard to be alone. And so she runs out of that house again. I have a friend who struggled, who still struggles with same-sex attraction. And for three years, I walked alongside her and I said, like, let's work through this with God. And she finally just said, it's too hard. I'm going to leave the house. And so we have to watch our friends go and just pray that God brings them back in before the storm of his final judgment hits. We don't want them to be outside of the house. We don't want them to be away from the shelter of God's blood when his actual judgment comes. So my pleading with you today is to stay in the house. Don't let temptation or worry or the spiritual warfare that you feel is being waged against you just make you believe that it's better somewhere else. Stay in. That's the only way that you're going to be safe. Hang on to dear life for God and await his rescue. Stay in his word. Pray with your friends. And if you're struggling and if you're wondering if you can hang on, grab a people, bunch of people to walk through life together with you in accountability. Don't think that you can weather the storm better on your own or ditch your faith for an easier life. Every lie or every fear that comes from Satan is trying to encourage you to run out, to run out of the house. But it's only safe under the shelter of Jesus' blood. So let's pray to that end. Lord, we thank you that we can see in Scripture that your judgment is sure. We know you're not a God of empty threats and empty promises. You are a God who tells us, who shows us over and over again that what you predict happens. You tell us the way forward. You tell us what exactly you expect of us. You tell us how to get back. And when we, we refuse to listen, there comes a time where your patience runs out. And so, Father, we see that in Scripture. We see that uh, played out over and over again, and we see the warning that this will happen again. And so, Father, I just pray that you will help us take that to heart, that we will make decisions in light of eternity, in light of the fact that you are the one who can hold us, that you are the one that you can keep us secure in the midst of all the storms that we're facing. And Lord, I pray that we would um, rest in you and be secure in the midst of the storms that are swirling around us. We pray, Father, that we would not let anything that's discouraging us to stop us from following you. We pray, Father, that you would hold us, that you would keep us safe, that you would keep us in your house until the day that you return. So, Father, we thank you for this time that we have together. We thank you for the warnings in your word. 
Lord, we pray that all these warnings would prepare us for that great and terrible day so that we can stand before you in him. Pray these things in your name. Amen.